Another edition of Jamal About Sports coming to you on Monday night, January 13th, 2020. First show of the new year. As always, I'm your host, Jamal Hayden. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of Jamal About Sports. This would be episode number 123. Kicking off the show, Tom's Diner by Suzanne Vega. Um, It's actually the title of that particular track is DNA featuring Suzanne Vega. I'm pretty sure the story behind that goes. That song's probably from about, I want to say, 1990, 91. Um, There was this group DNA, and they liked it, and they sort of did a remake of it, a sample, if you will, although it's not really a sample. Um, Did kind of their own remake uh, without asking Suzanne Vega's permission, but then she heard about it. She heard the song. She liked it. And uh, rather than, I guess, like suing them, um, she, I think they ended up splitting the money or something. It was some sort of magnanimous gesture on Suzanne Vega's part, which I thought was, was pretty cool. But in any event, big show to get to. Lots of football. We've got a little bit of baseball as uh, Rob Manfred actually uh, puts the hammer down on the Houston Astros organization, and rightfully so. Um, and uh, we'll see if we can get to a little bit of NBA if time uh, allows but we start with, um, first I want to go over the coaching carousel uh, because I uh, didn't get to it last week. Um, and uh, so we had five openings, the Browns, the Giants, the Panthers, the Redskins, Giants, Redskins, Panthers, Browns, and Cowboys. Um, Cowboys hired Mike McCarthy. Uh, AG weighed in on this. Said it's basically the same thing as to as like when you your team drafts somebody that you don't like, and then you start going. You immediately shift into uh, talk yourself into it mode. That's basically where he is with Mike McCarthy. Um, not a huge fan of the hire. Listen, the interesting thing about Mike McCarthy is on its surface. Right, his track record is very good. Uh, I believe he's something like one twenty something and seventy something career record. Uh, has a Super Bowl victory under his belt. However, he also had the benefit of having Brett Favre there, and a lot of other very good players like Clay Matthews on defense, just to name one. Um, and so, some people ding him for the fact that they only won one Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers. Um, lost some games, like in twenty eleven, to the Giants, where they were heavily favored. Uh, lost to Arizona uh, in 14, I believe. No, sorry, in 15, where they probably should have, they were, even though it was in Arizona, they, they were considered the favorite. Um, and so I think some might look at it, and I'm actually one of them saying they kind of underachieved. And look, I'll also give AG credit for this one. He calls McCarthy the Inspector Cluzo of head coaches, and the reference being that, you know, if anybody's a fan of the, those old Pink Panther movies with Peter Sellers as Inspector Cluzo, you know, he's a complete bumbling buffoon, but yet somehow things always kind of ended up his way. Um, and I think McCarthy is, is similar in that respect. And again, he had Aaron Rodgers to bail him out of a lot of bad decisions. Um, you know, so again, on its surface, the record is, is unimpeachable. I mean, it's, it's a great record, right? Over 50 games, over 500 for his career with a Super Bowl win. Um, so from a Cowboys standpoint, you know, and a Jerry Jones standpoint, I guess it makes sense. Um, it's certainly a departure from what we saw last year, which was basically if you were under the age of 40, uh, had worked with Sean McVay in any capacity or even knew him and were an offensive coach, you were getting a head coaching job. So McCarthy, obviously known to be an offensive guy, Goes all the way back to when he was a coordinator with New Orleans. Um, And, um, you know, look, you you can't obviously uh, 
criticized Rodgers' play during McCarthy's tenure there, and, and Rodgers, I think, liked him very much. Now, look, things went sour the last year or so. That happens. Again, what was he there? About, about 10 years? 11 years? He was there a long time. Sometimes it's just time for, for, for you know, two parties to, uh, to separate. So is it the worst hire in the world? No. Does it get you super excited, though, if you're a Cowboys fan? I don't think so. Um, but again, look, you know, this stuff is all such a crapshoot, right? I mean, I'll be the first to admit, when the Lions hired Jim Caldwell, I was not exactly excited. He turned out to be a pretty good head coach, particularly his first year. Lions won 11 games his first year and should have had a playoff win against the Cowboys. Um, so, you know, I wasn't thrilled with the hire. Uh, I take Jim Caldwell right back right now after seeing the last two disastrous years I got from Matt Patricia. And, you know, I read all the glowing, flowery prose about what a great hire Matt Patricia was. Right? A former rocket scientist that worked for Bill Belichick in New England in the Patriot way and all this other nonsense. And it's turned out so far the first two years, Matt Patricia's a terrible head coach. Terrible. I don't want to hear about injuries. I don't want to hear about anything. I don't want to hear about culture changes and instilling a new system. I, I, I don't want to hear about any of that nonsense. I'm not going to go off on a Lions rant here, but I'm just saying. A lot of people thought he was going to be a great hire. A lot of people thought Pat Shermer was going to be a good hire for the Giants. We'll move on to them next. He was going to be the adult after the Bob McAdoo, not Bob, Ben McAdoo fiasco. Never understood the McAdoo hire. I really didn't understand the Pat Shermer hire. Pat Shermer, 9-23 with the Browns, 9-23 with the Giants. Now, granted, I understand the Browns always are horrible. Um, but, you know, Pat Shermer rode the wave of the Vikings basically getting dumb lucky with the the music uh, the uh, the the Minneapolis miracle where you know Sean uh, Marcus Williams the safety for the Saints whiffs on a tackle on, on Stephon Diggs it should have been an easy tackle easy play game over uh, you know and people said oh if he could get Case Keenum to the NFC Championship game I, I mean look Case Keenum's an okay quarterback he's all right everybody knows that Mike Zimmer that and the Vikings at defense really ran really carried that team that year. And, and, and Keenum played reasonably well. But again, my point is, everybody thinks they know. Nobody knows. <laughs> nobody knows. Look, I'll go to my grave saying Jim Schwartz was the right hire for the Lions coming off the disastrous run of Matt Millen. Morningwag, Mariucci, Marinelli. Three horrendous coaches in a row. And early on, it looked like that was going to be right. And for a couple of ball bounces here, a couple of flags you know, there... Couple of replays here and there, you know. Jim Schwartz could easily still be the Lions coach. I mean, the year, his second year, they went six and ten. That team could have been ten and six. They went ten and six the next year. You know, they were six and three his last year before he got fired in 2013. And you know, 61 yard field goal by uh, Justin Tucker. Pick six against the Giants on a tip ball. That that was the only way they were going to lose that game. Uh, a couple other plays in that season that didn't go their way. I, I mean, look. You, even the year before, where where they in 2012 when they were four and four, and then lost their last eight games, they, they were in almost every single one of those games. The Thanksgiving Day game, the Colts game, where Drayton Florence drops a game sealing interception. And Andrew Luck stages a massive comeback. I mean, they, they, I mean, you know, so nobody knows. So the Giants hired Joe Judge, special teams coach from the Giants. I mean, from the Patriots. Now, of course, another one of these Patriots guys, right? It's supposed to be, you know, it's funny. If you look around the league, the only Patriots assistant Patriots assistant now, somebody who worked for Bill Belichick, that's really had any sort of modicum of success has been Bill O'Brien with the Texans, right? Then they've been good, not great, right? I mean, they, they, they won a playoff game against Buffalo that they were supposed to win, that, you know, they had to squeeze it out in overtime. Okay, but it's a win, right? They made the playoffs other years, a lot of, a couple of different seasons they didn't have. Their, their quarterback had gotten hurt. 
They were playing with second and third string guys. TJ Yates started a quarter, started a playoff game for them once. So, you know, look, he's done an okay job. He hasn't been great. He hasn't been terrible. It's been okay. And, you know, but that team's got talent. It's got stars. Start with the quarterback, Deshaun Watson. DeAndre Hopkins, stud wide receiver. J.J. Watt. I mean, J.J. Watt be the tell you, first person to tell you how great J.J. Watt is. Nobody loves J.J. Watt more than J.J. Watt. Now, look, great player? Yes. Did he raise a ton of money for the city of Houston after the hurricane? Sure did. Two things can be true. He can be a very uh, charitable, philanthropic person who's a great football player and also be an enormous egomaniac. (laughs) So it's not like these Houston Texans haven't had good teams. They have. They haven't had, not like they haven't had talent, they have. Bill O'Brien's done an okay job there. You look at the other Patriots assistants. Patricia, we talked about him. Awful. Romeo Cornell, when he got his chance, not very good. Charlie Weiss at Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Not exactly tough to recruit at Notre Dame. Terrible job there. Eric Mangini, not a very good job with the Jets and then really bad with the Browns. You know what? You could almost take the Browns out of the mix, though, to be fair. <laughs> I mean, that they really they make the Lions look like the Yankees. I mean, they really do. That is the worst-run organization in sports. It really, what a, what a joke they are. Jimmy and D. Haslam, Flying J, Truck Stops. That's their main business. That's where he's made all his billions somehow. Um... But yeah, they uh, they are a joke. And of course, the job was open again this year. They gave Freddie Kitchens a whole one year. Should have never had him the job in the, to begin with, but then they gave him a whopping one year and, they, and they're moving on. After, you know, what, Shermer got two years. Uh, Hugh Jackson got, what, a year and a little and a half. Um, who else am I missing? Uh... Not Jeff Davidson. Who is the other? There's another guy that they they gave an offensive coordinator. It was an odd hire at the time. They gave him a job, and he lasted, a, I think, a year or two. I, I the, the the Browns had coaching jobs. One of the worst jobs in football and sports. Certainly, it's the it's the worst job of football. Um, and the sad thing is, again, as we talked about many times during the season, Browns actually have talent now. So anyway, getting back to the whole Patriots assistant thing, it's completely overrated. Oh, and Josh McDaniels, who had, you know, a year, what do you get, two years in Denver. First year, they were, eh, what, eight and eight, I think. Second year, unmitigated disaster. Uh, complete, you know, completely turned off everybody in the building with his, you know, smug, arrogant, you know, antisocial behavior, basically. Um, and then, by the way, you know, left the, the Colts at the altar two years ago. Now they got the better of that deal because they ended up hiring Frank Reich, who's done a pretty good job there so far. Um, and now, by the way, McDaniels, everybody thought he was going to be earmarked for Cleveland, and he didn't get that job either. And he didn't even interview with the Giants. The Giants fell in love with Joe Judge. Everybody thought the Giants was gonna were, were going to hire Matt Rule, myself included. Matt Rule ended up get, being blown away by David Tepper, the new billionaire owner of the Panthers to the tune of seven years, $62 million. <laughs> Hard to turn that down. And, you know, a lot of people wanted to kill the Giants. Again, look, I like Matt Rule. He's a New York, you know, local guy. Did a great job at Temple. Did a great job at Baylor. Uh, I, I've talked about him on the, I talked about him on the show months ago before he was on anybody's radar. Just after watching the Big 12 championship game and, and, and the class in which he showed and just, you know, just what a what a you know seemingly humble guy. He's not one of these you know it's all about me Nick Saban types. Urban Meyer, right? Seems like a likable guy, a guy you can root for. Plus, did a really good job at you know Baylor. We talked about the horrible situation he took over there. Temple, you know, he made that team into you know Temple's got a pedigree now, right? I mean, I know they don't play in a Power Five conference, but you, when you play Temple, you're going to be in for a dogfight every single game. Temple tough, they call it. And a lot in large part that's due to Matt Rule and a legacy he left behind there. So everybody thought he was gonna be a Giants guy. He was assistant offensive line coach for the Giants back in twenty twelve. 
Um, he didn't get the job. A lot of people killed the Giants. Now, you know, Peter King, good good article today in his column about sort of the, the, the confluence of events that transpired um, and, and, and how it all sort of uh, broke down as far as the timing of Joe Judge going to the Giants and Rule getting hired by Carolina. You know, Ron Rivera, who got hired by the Redskins, was already in place. He was the first domino, so to speak, to fall. And good hire by the Redskins. Again, you know, Ron Rivera, two-time coach of the year, made a Super Bowl. Um, you know, he's gonna go, you know that team's going to play good defense. Um, going to be disciplined most of the time. Now, the Redskins, again, with that owner, who knows if anybody can be successful there. But if anybody can be, I think Ron Rivera might be a good choice. Particularly, you know, we've talked about all the good young talent that Washington's been amassing on defense. And he hired Jack Del Rio to be his defense coordinator. He's got a you know pretty good track record in that regard, and also wasn't a bad head coach either. Um, you know, was de- had mixed results in Jacksonville, mixed results in Oakland. But you know, again, not not two franchises exactly known. I mean, the Raiders used to be in the '70s, but I mean they haven't been a relevant you know quality franchise for many many years. And Jacksonville is an expansion team. I mean, I understand it's twenty almost thirty years ago now, but nevertheless, still an expansion team. So, look, the Joe Judge thing, he's 38 years old, special teams coach. Here's what's good, I think, about being a special teams coach. Special teams coaches, a couple of things. A, they work with every single, uh, they work with every player on a team, not every player, but both sides of the ball, right? Because guys from offense and guys on defense play special teams. And you got four phases of special teams, too. You know, it's often overlooked, but to me, the mark of a good team and a good coach, is particularly a new coach that comes in, is if you had bad special teams, that team before, and you clean that up, that's the mark of a good coach. You know, you got the kicking game, the kick return game, the punt game, the punt return game. Four phases. It's important, right? Hidden yardage, not so hidden yardage. It's an important, you know, being, be, it's, it's a very important part. I mean, <laughs> look no further than Kansas City-Houston game yesterday. You don't think special teams are important. Five plays. Now, look. Kansas City is unbelievable. They scored on the, they went out to go and f- score five separate possessions. But well, we'll get to that in a little while. When we get when we break down the games, but special teams massively important, often overlooked. John Harbaugh, to my knowledge, the only head coach right now in the NFL who came from the special teams ranks. He was the special teams coordinator, and then I think also wide receivers coach. Joe Judge doing the same, taking the same path here. And John Harbaugh, despite Baltimore's extremely up, uh, disappointing loss to Tennessee, is a very good coach, as we all know, including a Super Bowl win and a team that perennially is competitive and makes the playoffs. So, um, so you got to work with players on both sides of the ball. And special teams coaches aren't married to a precious system, right? If you hire a defense coordinator, that guy's got his system, like Matt Patricia and his outdated uh, you know, antiquated, ridiculous scheme that he runs that doesn't stop anybody. Or if you have an offensive coach, right, they're going to want to run that system. Special teams coach aren't bogged down by that. Much more open-minded. And I loved what he said at his press conference, and we've talked about this on this show a million times, which is, you know, instead of talking about what guys can't do, you know, it's my old Camby corollary, right? Calipari said this about Marcus Camby a million years ago. When he coached him at UMass, and then the Knicks drafted him, and everybody got all upset because he wasn't a rough and, and no, I'm sorry, the Knicks traded for him. They traded Charles Oakley, fan favorite for him, because everybody was upset because Camby was a 6'11 guy who wasn't a bruiser. And Cal Perry said, look, if you want a guy who's going to, you know, have low post moves and be a bruiser, that's not who he is. You want a guy who's going to sh- play defense, block shots, run the floor, dunk, score on follow up misses, and dunk. That's, that's your guy. So stop worrying about what guys can't do and focus on what they can do and then put them in positions to do those things that they do well. And Joe Judge basically said that at his press conference. That's his main overarching philosophy. That the one thing he took away from the Patriots and Bill Belichick was that. I wish Matt Patricia would take that away instead of trying to, as Joe Judge said, cram, he actually got it reversed, but it's cram a square peg in a round hole. He said a, a round peg in a square hole. We'll, we'll give him a pass. He's 38. <laughs> so listen, I, I, I think if you're a Giants fan, 
you don't have to be doing cartwheels in the aisles, but you also don't have to be, you know, ripping up your season tickets either. It's very, it's totally okay to take a wait and see approach here. Talked about the Redskins and Ron Rivera. Talked about Carolina with Matt Rule. Cowboys and Mike McCarthy. And then lastly, the Browns finally announced yesterday they're hiring Kevin Stefanski, the offensive coordinator for, you guessed it, the Vikings. So this, Now, the last two offensive coordinators off Mike Zimmer's staff have gotten hired as head coaches. Pat Shermer, who's now not a head coach, obviously, anymore, and now Kevin Stefanski. And look, I understand you don't make your determinations based on one game, but after the way San Francisco completely manhandled the Vikings' offense— uh, I, I don't think you gotta be, you're going to be thrilled if you're a Browns fan. And by the way, again, if you're a Browns fan, it's like being a Mets fan. There, there's no way you give your ownership the benefit of the doubt on anything. If any sort of a hire is some sort of a, um, a unique hire, uh, I hate this term because it's so overused, but I guess I'll just use it anyway, the outside-the-box hire, the Browns' ownership certainly deserves zero benefit of the doubt. And so if I were a Browns fan, I, I would be livid right now. If you're going to hire an offensive guy, could you, could you get me Eric Bieniemy, please, from Kansas City, the best offense in the league? I mean, Vikings offense is good. It's pretty good. It's decent. But, you know, again, we talked about it. Kirk Cousins, yeah, he sort of got off the schneid two weeks ago when he went. they went into New Orleans and they beat New Orleans, and he actually made some big throws there, including the game-winning touchdown in overtime. So give credit where credit's due. But against a superior defense like San Francisco's, and without the benefit of a running game, because San Francisco completely took Dalvin Cook out of the game, and Richard Sherman, the corner for, for you know, longtime Seahawks corner, now 49ers corner, said, look, we're going to take Dalvin Cook away and make Kirk Cousins beat us, because we didn't think he could, and he couldn't. I mean, he, he was laughable yesterday, laughable. And we, we, so, you know, while, again, the Vikings office has been okay, it's been decent, it hasn't been great. So, the Kevin's the fancy hire, I don't understand at all. It's like he's got this great track record. And you just went offense also. Now, if you want, again, if you want to go offense, how about Eric Bieniemy? Former stud running back at University of Colorado back in the day. And, you know, guy who's on office coordinator now with the Chiefs, learn at the feet of one of the best offensive minds in the league's the league's seen in the last 25 years and Andy Reid. Look, I understand Andy Reid has shortcomings. Game management, clock management, you know, probably first and foremost. Again, look at Andy Reid's track record. As far as you, you talk about a guy, you know, you, you, you want a coach that wins 10 games at least almost every year and gets you in the playoffs? It's Andy Reid. Now, I understand we live in a society now where winning the Super Bowl, it's, it's either win it all or everything else is a failure. I, I, we really need to revisit that. Maybe I'm coming, you know, maybe my perspective is different because I'm coming at this from the perspective of a Lions fan where I will gladly take my next head coach to be here for 10 years and go, you know, between 10 and 6 and 12 and 4 every year and make the playoffs every year, win a couple playoff games, make it to a championship game, maybe make it to a Super Bowl. And oh God, heavens forbid they they don't win a Super Bowl and we got to get them out of here. It's ridiculous. Who do you think you are? Sorry, not everybody's the Patriots. And even they don't win it every year. Even they don't, some, they don't even make it every year. So, which brings us to the Rooney Rule, which was a rule adopted 17 years ago, right? Named after the late, great Dan Rooney, owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, to uh, make hiring... Mostly black, but minority candidates, but mostly black, let's be real. To give opportunities to black assistant coaches to become head coaches in the NFL. And 17 years ago, there were three black head coaches, one black general manager, zero majority owners. 17 years later, three black head coaches, one general manager, zero majority owners. It's a joke. I mean, it's become a check-the-box Formality is part of a hiring process. Uh, now, we were up to, I think, not that long ago, there were eight uh, black head coaches in the NFL at one time. And look, I'm not advocating to hire somebody based on the color of their skin one way or the other. But the idea that the league is 70% players, and you're seeing more and more players are going into coaching now. I mean, I saw Aaron Glenn is a secondary coach for the 49ers. Um, 
Pepper Johnson has been a long-time assistant coach in the league. Uh, Brian Cox was uh, an assistant coach in the league for a long time. Um, you know, you still have old guys. You still have guys like like Todd Bowles, who was a head coach. Jim Caldwell, who was a head coach, who had some success in two different places. Didn't even get a look this time around, right? My point is, uh, they they need to do a better job with this. Make make it. You know, right now the rule is you know one candidate. Maybe it's got to be two. And there's got to be a better job getting these guys, as as I think John Merrill pointed out actually, getting the black assistants up to, particularly now, in a league where everybody loves offense, to coordinator positions, offensive mostly. And have some sort of a mechanism in place for that. Because you can't tell me with, you know, I'm not just, I don't know the exact numbers, but there's plenty of black assistants in a league. Like I was gonna, Anybody ever heard of Joe Judge? And again, I'm not saying Joe Judge won't be a great coach. Maybe he will. But you know what? Nobody heard of Mike Tomlin either when the Steelers hired him. He's done pretty well. You know, Byron Leftwich is the offense coordinator right now in, down in Tampa Bay. Played quarterback in the league. Was a pretty good quarterback in the league. Tampa Bay's offense put up a ton of points and, and yards this year. Now, granted, I understand Jameis Winston... There's a disaster with his 30 interceptions. That's not Brian Leftwich's fault. And if anything, Byron Leftwich elevated J- Jameis Winston's game this year, and with you know, and got massive years out of two of the wide receivers in Evans and and uh, Godwin. You never heard his name once come up. Eric Bieniemy did interview some of the places, got passed over again for the likes of Kevin Stefanski. And again, I'm not saying it's a racist thing. I don't. I really don't think that's what the root of the problem is. I don't. Maybe I'm being naive. I don't think it's a racist thing, but I do think there is an element to, and maybe this is a form of racism. Racism. I don't know. But there's an element to, you know, owners and GMs basically hire guys that you know that they quote unquote know. Um. You know, so maybe it is. I mean, and again, maybe it's not overt, and maybe it's not even conscious. I don't think it's a conscious thing, I guess, is my point. I don't think the Browns looked at Eric Bieniemy and Kevin Stefanski and said, I'm going to hire Kevin Stefanski over Eric Bieniemy because he's white and Eric Bieniemy's black. I don't think that that is the case. I sure hope that's not the case. But I also think teams talk themselves into some of these hires. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the answers are. Something needs to be done, though. Because, I mean, it's really... For a league where 70-something percent of the players are black, and again, a lot of these guys are going into coaching, too, so it's not like there's not a pool of candidates out there and have three black coaches out of 32 teams. It's a bad look. It's just a bad look. That's it. All right, we'll take a short break. We'll be back with the playoff game breakdowns right after this. Okay, we're back. So, uh, we talked about Minnesota-San Francisco. I mean, look... Talked about San Francisco all year long. That defense is legit. Garoppolo's pretty good, not great. Uh, you know, obviously needs a bigger resume first for us to put Garoppolo in the great category. Um, but um, interesting, if you looked at the game, so you know, NFL, myself included, a lot of you know, the the, the conventional wisdom is it's a passing league. Uh, you've seen team a team like Tennessee now go on a road against two teams and run the ball down their throats, even when the other team knew it was coming. Uh, you saw Baltimore, who was really more of a running team than a passing team, even though Lamar Jackson threw for a, a lot of touchdowns. A lot of that was a result of his own running ability, plus Mark Ingram as well. Um, you know, San Francisco is somewhat of a balanced team. Uh, they ran it right down the Vikings' throats yesterday. The biggest play in that game, came, biggest se- sequence of that game came when they were up 17-10, got the ball back, and then literally did not ran the ball eight straight times in a row and then ran it in for a touchdown, go up two scores, and you knew the game was over. Uh, but interestingly enough, they opened up the game passing and threw for their first touchdown. So they sort of opened up the running game by throwing it first, which uh, my dad has been saying for a million years, is you throw to run. Um, and I, I, I agree, and certainly that proved true in yesterday's game with San Francisco and Minnesota. Um yeah, look, Minnesota's a good team. They're not a great team. We talked about it just so, you know, I mean, 
you know, uh, pretty good offense with Diggs and Thielen. You know, again, Kirk Cousins is he puts up flowery numbers. Um, his numbers look good, and he doesn't even throw a lot of interceptions. But when he does throw them, usually they're killers. Now he didn't do it against New Orleans for the first time in his career. Um, and look, to be fair to him, that off, the offensive line in Minnesota is not great, but. This is really not about what Minnesota didn't do. It's about what San Francisco does do, and that is their defense is off the charts good, especially that front seven. I mean, you look 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 at look at their front four, all number one picks: Eric Armstead, first round pick; uh, DeForest Buckner, first round pick; Solomon Thomas, first round pick; and Joey uh, Nick Bosa, first round pick. And then they've got studs at linebacker. They got Quan Alexander back, who they gave a big contract to in the off season. Um, you know. I love uh, Fred Warner. Uh, the Greenlaw guy who made the big tackle on the goal line against Seattle can play. Um, you know, and then they've got good players in the secondary, led by Richard Sherman and Jaquiski Tart at safety and Jimmy Ward. I mean, all these guys are second, third, you know, first, second, third round picks are obviously in the case of Sherman, you know, uh, a, a perennial all-pro who, yes, he's 31, but he's certainly showing no signs of slowing down and is one of the smarter corners you'll ever see in a league. I mean, he had an interception the other the other in this game against Minnesota. I mean, he basically ran a route for Adam Thielen. You know, it was a bit of a little, 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 little in-breaking route, and he's, he knew exactly what was coming. He jumped at first. You know, it's one of those ones where Cousins is expecting the guy – you know, the ball to arrive as the guy's making his break and his turn back for the ball. And instead, Sherman was in his hip pocket and ran a route for him and intercepted it easily. The guy's one of the smartest players in the NFL. So, you know, that defense is full-on legit. And then, they, listen, that, that offensive line's pretty good. Uh, they just beat Minnesota down. Now, part of that was the fact Minnesota's offense did nothing. I mean, I think Dalvin Cook had, what, eight yard, eight, eight carries for 16 yards. So the defense is on a field. And so by the time, again, that drive where they ran the ball eight straight times, I mean, they were gassed. They were done. Um, and that defense that had looked so good the week before in stifling and frustrating Drew Brees, you know, really got it handed to them. Again, kind of not all their fault, right? A lot of that was the fact they're on the field an awful lot. Um, so now that brings up, we'll go to Seattle, Green Bay. Uh, you know, didn't look like a great game. Looked like Green Bay was going to roll. Give Seattle and particularly Russell Wilson a ton of credit for hanging in. That guy, I mean, he really is unbelievable. I mean, he's unbelievable. The Smith brothers, you know, not really brothers, but Zadarius Smith and Preston Smith, the two outside edge rushers for Green Bay, who we talked about on an earlier show, and what a smart move it was signing both of those guys when pass rush was their major deficiency on defense last year. Um, both those guys, I think one, I think it was Preston Smith said, yeah, trying to tackle, tackle, trying to tackle Russell Wilson is like trying to tack, catch a, a kitchen, a, a kitchen, a chicken in a field without any fences. I mean, he's impossible to bring down. And they still, they got him five times. They could have probably had another five sacks in that game, if not for his, you know, uncanny ability to avoid sacks. And then not only that, he avoids sacks. Not like he just throws the ball away. I mean, he'll either complete a pass downfield or he'll run for 10 or 15 or 20 yards. I mean, the guy's amazing. He put the team on his back, gave them a chance. Pete Carroll, by the way, love him as a coach. Another guy doesn't understand when to go for two. I mean, they get to 28, now it's going to be 28-24, right, with the field goal, with like nine minutes left to go in the game. He goes for two. I understand you want to, you'd want like to get to three there. Why? Could we, what, are you playing for overtime? I mean, it makes no sense. You're going to get at least another possession. Now Green Bay is going to get the ball back. Now if you hold Green Bay to a field goal and they kick a, kick a field goal, now you're down eight. If you would just if you just kick the extra point, now it didn't come back to bite him in this game because Green Bay, mostly Rodgers, made two huge third-down completions, pinpoint passes, you know, perfect, typical Rodgers stuff two third and nines and completed you know converted both of them to basically so they could run the clock out but had seattle held in a field goal there now you're down seven and you can tie the game you now you're four but when you miss when you don't get the two-point conversion now you're forced to go for two if you hold the other team to a field goal and you're down eight it just it's, it's just dumb um who else made that mistake john harbaugh made the same mistake too against tennessee on saturday night he he they got to 28 12 
And instead of just kicking the extra point there and getting it to 28-13, which now you're down 15, he tries to go for two. So now if they were to score two, two touchdowns, now you have to go for two both times. If you kick the extra point the first time, now you only have to go for two once out of your next two scores. And you can choose when you want to do it also. So you could either do it the next time to get to seven or you could wait till the last time. It's amazing. These guys don't know this. I, I don't understand. I guess it's because they always just assume that they're going to get it. But it seems like very few teams ever get it. I, I really don't understand it. But anyway, uh, so look, Rodgers did what Rodgers does. I mean, you know, Green Bay has been, you know, we talked about it this year. They can really run the ball. Uh, Aaron Jones has been great. Um, you know, and the defense is vastly improved. We've talked about that too. The young kids in the secondary and the Smith brothers, I mean, way, 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 way improved. Um, so now that sets up an you know, a, what should be a good game between Green Bay and, and San Francisco out in San Francisco. Uh, talked about the time they played earlier in the year when the refs desperately tried to keep Green Bay in the game. And despite the refs' best efforts, San Francisco still mauled Green Bay. Uh, I suspect this will be a different outcome, but um, I still think San Francisco should win that game. Uh, so it's the best defense Rodgers has faced all season. And again, they can stop the run, can San Francisco. And then Tennessee, Baltimore, just alluded to it. I mean, that was a stunner of stunners. And Tennessee, I mean, a 9-7 team against a 14-2 team, team that had won 12 games in a row, uh, I did not think Tennessee beating New England was a big stunner. We talked about, I mean, New England went four and five the last nine games of the year. The Dolphins went five and four and beat New England when New England needed the game to secure home field advantage. So, you know, New England's offense was diminished all year. We know it, you know, finally, you know, you can't just keep losing good players year after year after year and never replacing them with good players and then expect to be good on offense. And Brady is 42. I understand he's an anomaly in a lot of ways. He's still 42. So Tennessee beating the Patriots is not a huge upset. Yeah, uh, beating Baltimore is an enormous, massive upset. And it's funny. That game turned on basically early in the game. You know how we always talk about you know one or two plays early in the game, regardless of what the score ends up looking like, can com- completely change the complexion of the game. And for Baltimore, that was interception that went kind of off the fingertips of Mark Andrews, tight end for the Ravens, who's had a phenomenal season. Right into Kevin, the waiting hands of Kevin Bayard, the safety for Tennessee, who's always around the ball. Guy gets four, five, six interceptions every single year. One of the better ball-hawking safeties in the league. And then Tennessee basically just rolled from there. I mean, it was, you know, a couple interceptions from Jackson, the lost fumble. Remember, he was awful in the playoff game against San Diego last year. Although that, to me, was not... I I did not... I was not surprised by that outcome last year. That San Diego defense was good. Last year, they were really one-dimensional. I did not think that you could get away with having a basically a run-only quarterback against a good defense in the playoffs, and I was proven right. The big difference this year was Jackson threw the ball so much better this year than he did last year. And his numbers look good against Tennessee. I mean, he threw for over 300, ran for over 100, but you know most of that was in garbage time. And Tennessee, I mean, this Derrick Henry, I mean, this is unbelievable. I mean, by the way, Derrick Henry won the Heisman Trophy, one of the probably more boring Heisman, no offense to him, but just one of the sort of more boring Heisman Trophy campaigns that year, one of the sort of the less, you know, least sexy Heisman Trophy winners. And his first few years in the league, you're kind of like, hey, all right, he's Derrick Henry, he's all right. You know, he's decent. It's uh, okay, kind of a three-yard. So it's always, I always at least thought of him as kind of a three yards in a cloud of dust guy. Meanwhile, what do you go for, 190? And they went 180 against, uh, he's averaging 140 yards a game. His last three games, he went for over 200 and a must-have win over Houston the last game of the year. I think he went for 180-something against the Patriots and 190-something against Baltimore. Pretty good. I mean, and he's 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 strange because he's so big. He's 6'4", almost 250 pounds. He looks like a defensive end, and he runs upright a lot. 
And you don't think he's fast, but when he gets to the edge, he's fast. He outruns. He had a 66-yard run against Baltimore. And Baltimore's defense is no slouch. They're one of the better defenses in the league. And they just pounded them and ran all over them. Again, some of that was a function of the fact that Baltimore's offense was, you know, giving the ball away and going three and out a lot. But, I mean, listen, tip of the cap. Tremendous. And then we get to the the main event, which was one of the crazier games you'll ever see. Houston, Kansas City. So we talked about special teams. So talk about it. Here we go. Houston got the opening kickoff, went down and scored a touchdown. Kansas City gets the ball back. Third down, Mahomes hits uh, Travis Kelsey, you know, arguably the best tight end in the league, if not the best, you know, if Kittle's one, he's 1A, right? Kittle from San Francisco. He drops an easy third down completion, so not him. Next play, punt block touchdown, 14-0 before he could blink. Then uh, Kansas City had another drop on a third down. Um, Then they finally get a stop on defense. They put Tyreek Hill back there to return the punt, even though he's not their normal punt returner, but he's so electric with the ball in his hands, the speedy wide receiver. He fumbles the ball on the 10-yard line. Houston recovers at the 5. They score. It's 21-0 before he could blink. Then um, you had... So wait, you had the pump block, you had the muff punt. Oh, then Baltimore, uh, Houston goes for a field goal instead of going for it on fourth and less than a yard to go up 24-0. Some people are killing O'Brien for that. I didn't think that that was a bad, I mean, you'd think 24-0. Granted, it was a little gimmicky how they got there, but you'd think that's still a pretty good lead. And, and it was early still in the first half. You didn't think you're done yet scoring at a whole second half to go. Uh, they kick the field goal. Kansas City takes the McCall Hardman, my guy from Georgia, rookie, takes the ensuing kickoff back like 60 yards. So they get great field position. They score a touchdown about three plays later. Now it's 24-7. Then, so here's where it gets weird. <laughs> so at then Kansas City gets a stop, gets the ball back. It's 24-14. On their own 31, on fourth and like four, they go for a fake punt. Kansas City's having none of it. Uh, Nick Sorensen, starting safety, also plays special teams for the Chiefs, makes an unbelievable one-on-one open field tackle on the up guy who took the snap and was trying to run around, Justin Reed, the safety for, for Houston, who plays on special teams. It looked like had he had he gotten around the edge, he would have gotten about 30 yards. They would have had an easy first down. And this guy Sorensen makes an unbelievable, great open field tackle. Kansas City scores again. Next thing you know, Kansas City scores on scores touchdowns on five straight possessions. Final score was 51-31 in a game that they trailed 24-0 after about eight minutes. I'm not, I, I mean, it was insane. So that means, but let's see if my advanced math can get here. That means they got out, <laughs> means Kansas City outscored Houston. 51-7 after being down 24 nothing, But nobody wants to give Eric Bietemi a job, huh? I mean, you got to be kidding me. Now, listen, Mahomes is great. Kelsey's great. I, and I find Romo to be a little overrated and somewhat annoying on air. But I give him credit. He was spot on yesterday. I mean, he basically said, look, if you're not going to get any pressure on Pat Mahomes and you're going to try to single cover and man cover the Chiefs and particularly Kelsey, forget it. And he was right. I mean, Kelsey had, what, 10 catches for 160 yards and three touchdowns? You know, and then they'll hit you with Damian Williams out of the backfield or McCole Harmon on a gadget play or Tyreek Hill on a bomb. I mean, they just, they're so well coached offensively. They do so many things. And Mahomes gives them the ability to do so many different things because he's mobile. He can throw from all different parts of the field. Um, you know, again, Kelsey is a legit mat- matchup nightmare. I mean, linebackers cannot cover him. You try to put even a big safety on him, he's a tough cover. Um, you know, or a big corner on him, he's a tough cover. Uh, I mean, just so. So what looked like was going to be a blowout one way, ended up being a blowout the other way. Uh, it was it was just, it was weird. So that sets up um, Kansas City hosting Tennessee. Two more disparate systems you'll, you'll never see, right? I mean... 
You've got Tennessee who wants to ground and pound and run the ball, which is the way to try to beat a team like Kansas City who, you know, can score in three plays. Um, I think Kansas City has the most drives of 80-plus yards of anybody, touchdown drives of any team in the league this year because they could just hit you. They just hit you big play, big play, big play. You know, three plays and they're in the end zone. It's unbelievable. So two completely contrasting styles there. And then we talked about Green Bay, San Francisco. All right, finally, let's get to Major League Baseball. So, you know, it's funny. This 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 cheating scandal with where the Astros and now also the Red Sox, uh, but the Astros uh, more egregiously, uh, have been found to basically be sign stealing, but like to the to the extent where they employed the use of technology, they were pounding on garbage cans in their uh, dugout to signal if the pitch was going to be an off speed pitch or a fastball. I mean, legit, blatant cheating, like absurd, like integrity of the game. You cannot have this type of cheating. You know, we all know baseball fans that it's been a long tradition for a little gamesmanship. Teams sort of, quote-unquote, steal signs of a runner's on second base. Maybe you get the catcher signs. That's one thing. This is completely different. And it was sort of an underreported story. Major League Baseball said they were going to do some serious investigation. I think everybody kind of rolled their eyes. Well, listen, and I've not been a, Matt, a Rob Manfred fan, the, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, particularly the way, most specifically because of the way he's allowed the, the Wilpons to ruin the Mets. Um, but... They just handed down the punishment today. The, the, the manager suspended a year. The GM suspended a year. The team fined $5 million. Loss of uh, a lot of draft picks. And then I'll give, give the Astros owner credit. He fired the GM and the manager. Fired. Goodbye. Now, I mean, I guess you could say the horse is already out of the barn. You're going to get suspended for one year. But look, you could easily insert the bench coach or somebody like that as a placeholder or see what the guy does. And if the guy has a great year, then you keep him in there. But if for some reason the team crumbles, then you could hire the manager back, I guess. So give uh, give the Astros owner credit and the GM too. And remember, the Astros were the gold standard about how to you know rebuild and tank and have a process and all the other nonsense. And, you know, yeah, good good for them. They won a World Series. They've been, you know, whatever. A bunch of cheaters. And by the way, Cora, Alex Cora, the Dodgers manager, when he was the bench coach in Houston, learned all these tricks. Apparently, he implemented some of these. He was the 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 uh, mastermind, quote unquote, behind a lot of this stuff. He's going to get dinged hard here too. They haven't announced what his punishment is. I bet you he gets it. If 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 AJ Hinch, the, the former manager of the Astros, got a season, Cora's going to get. Half a season with the Red Sox. Maybe he gets a full season too. Who knows? We'll see. And 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 rightfully so too. You know. And I I, I don't. I, you know. I, I'm a semi Red Sox supporter. I mean, I, I I don't. You know, they're not my team. I'm a Mets guy, but you know, because my my which is now not nearly as strong as it used to be. My distaste, shall we say, for the Yankees. I kind of subscribe to the the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So I kind of always root for the Red Sox. I got a lot of friends that are Red Sox fans. You know, I spent my summers on the Cape. I went to many Red Sox games over the course of my life as a kid. Uh, went, you know, went to a playoff game. I was going to say recently. Now it's seven years ago, by the way. But went to a playoff game, sat in the monster seats. I love Fenway. It's a great spot. Um, you know what? It, unacceptable what Cora did too, but really what the Astros did here too. So good job by Major League Baseball. And then we've got tonight's national championship game to finish up the show. LSU, basically kind of like a home game. I mean, look, I know they distribute the tickets supposedly evenly, and Clemson's a Southern team too, but they're in the Superdome. LSU, I understand Baton Rouge is not close to New Orleans, but, I mean, they are definitely, LSU is a a straight-up Louisiana team. I mean, it's Louisiana State University. People in New Orleans love LSU. You know, their colors are purple and gold. That's, you know, Louisiana colors. They're, you know, you, you go down Mardi Gras, you see purple and, and, and gold beads everywhere. Um, they are, so it's kind of like a mini home game. It'd be interesting to see 
what the what what the crowd is like. I'm going to suspect it's going to definitely be pro LSU. Clemson travels well. Again, they get a you know I think each university gets the same allotment of tickets. But you know with all the the kind of you know the the reseller market and stub hubs and all the other stuff that goes on, uh, and obviously the game being in the same state. I would suspect it'd be play more like a home game for LSU, but you know, look, Clemson has played in some some tough environments, so I don't think it is, that should be a huge issue. You know, we you, we expect a very high scoring game, two great offenses, two great quarterbacks. You guys know I'm an LSU guy. That's my team. That's one of my teams. Obviously, Maryland because my alma mater, but I always like LSU. Um, great uniforms, always. Can watch them because they put five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten guys in a pros every year, um, and uh, so my heart tells me LSU. My head says Clemson. I mean, I look. Maybe I'm out of my mind, and I hate the whole Dabo Sweeney. Nobody gave us a chance. Nonsense because they had the you know the the committee had the nerve to give them the third ranking or whatever. Uh, and I hate that tired and you know Rogers now and the Packers are playing that ridiculous card too. With oh yeah, you got guys. Relax. You went thirteen and three. You won the division. Nobody didn't gave you no chance. Stop it. Ridiculous. Uh, and and you were favored in yesterday's game too. So this nobody gave us a chance uh, narrative is a bunch of BS. But anyway, so I don't really li- I don't like Clemson. I don't want to root for Clemson. Clemson was in the you know was the bane of my existence when I was a, a Maryland student uh, and as a Maryland fan. When Maryland used to be in the ACC, they used to do a number on us every year. So I'm not a Clemson guy by any stretch. I just kind of feel like, though, they haven't lost the game in two years. Granted, they got some fortuitous calls and a couple of good breaks against a very good Ohio State team. And I understand that LSU blew Oklahoma's doors off. But Oklahoma's not nearly as good as Ohio State. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, my head tells me Clemson. I mean, again, I, I said this a while ago. I understand they didn't play anybody really all that good this year, except for Ohio State. Um, but just watch Clemson play. They have studs all over the field. Isaiah Simmons, number 11, a linebacker, safety, slash corner, slash, you know, defensive end on defense. To T. Higgins is 6'4", 6'5", stud wide receiver, number 8 on offense. To the quarterback, uh, Lawrence. I mean, they're, and, and, and Etienne, the running back. I mean, they're, they're, they're loaded. Clemson's loaded. Those guys are all pros. They're all first-round picks. Now, LSU's loaded too, and I think uh, Edwards Alaire is going to play this, the, 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 sta- the stocky Barry Sanders-ish running back for LSU, number 22, who I love. And we know about Burrow and his 55 touchdowns. I mean, he was tremendous. And it's not like LSU doesn't have studs too. Of course they do. I just think somehow Clemson gets it done. All right, that's going to do it. As always, thanks for listening. Check us out wherever you get your podcast. You can also check me out on Twitter at Jamalaboutsport, no S. Website, jamalaboutsports.com. Till next time, peace out.